Please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1. We haven't gotten very far in our study here. Um, had some, some breaks for missionaries, and now we've got the Christmas season upon us, and maybe we'll pick up the pace a little more after the first of the year. We're just looking at two verses tonight, verses 14 and 15. If you recall from the first sermon that um, I preached in this, I talked about how there's kind of three questions that swirl around in the background, if you will, um, as you go through the book of Mark, as you go through this gospel. And those three questions are, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? And sometimes Mark, and often Mark just kind of gives us a little bit at a time. And I, I think that adds to the excitement of reading this book as he just gives us sometimes a little piecemeal of what those, those answers are. So we're going to see a little bit more of that, especially that third question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? So last time we looked at two very significant events, his um, his baptism and his temptation. And we saw that Jesus, his baptism showed that he was the true Israel. And, and really the temptation showed that as well. But in his baptism, he identified with the Israelites. He identified with sinners. And he went down into that water just like they did. And then in his temptation, he endured that temptation. He came through it victorious. He succeeded where Israel failed. Israel failed in the wilderness. They grumbled, they complained, they disobeyed. Christ was obedient. Christ looked to his father and obeyed and came forth victorious. So today we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 and consider that the message of the gospel is a message of faith and repentance. It's pretty simple, but we need to be reminded of it. So before we read this text, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, we come to you, and we look forward with eager anticipation the opportunity to study your word. I pray that we, as we examine it, Lord, that it would examine us, that your word would search our hearts, and by your Holy Spirit, examine us and reveal sin, and give us opportunities to repent and believe the gospel a new tonight, we ask. Would you do that for us, we pray. And Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. I feel very blessed to be part of this church. And one reason that I feel blessed to be part of this church is that the gospel is preached. The gospel is proclaimed. And I think most of us, being good Reformed folks that show up on Sunday night would probably know what the gospel is. We know that that it involves God, God who made us, who has the right and the authority to demand things of his creation. We know that it involves mankind, that man has sinned and fallen from the place where God has made him. And that because of our sin, we need a savior. And the gospel certainly involves the plan of redemption Through Jesus Christ. We know the facts of the gospel past. And we also know the promises of the gospel future. That because 
we have repented and believed, if we are in Christ, then we have a promise of being with Christ forever, for eternity. But what difference does the gospel make today? What difference does it make when you're washing laundry or when you're wrapping presents or teaching your kids or struggling to meet a big deadline at work or when you're facing the same temptation that you've faced again and again and you're frustrated that you feel like you haven't progressed in your Christian walk? What difference does it make now? Sometimes I think we fail to embrace what Paul Tripp calls the nowism of the gospel. And in our text this morning... Jesus gives us a short summary of the gospel by proclaiming what our response should be to the coming of the kingdom of God. He says simply, repent and believe the gospel. Just six words that should be easy for us to do. But I think sometimes we struggle to truly repent and truly, faithfully, consistently believe in how the gospel applies to us today. And and maybe I should say not just today, but on Tuesday and on Thursday, when we're struggling and when we're beat down. For just as faith and repentance are the hallmarks of entering the kingdom of God, so these twin graces should be the hallmark of those who walk in Christ. The hallmark of those living the Christian life who are members of the kingdom of God. These verses begin to answer what it means to follow Jesus, that third question that we mentioned. In fact, the next set of verses that we'll look at next time talks about Jesus calling his disciples, explaining to them more of what it means to follow him. But here we have what I'm calling the prerequisite to discipleship, but also the life of discipleship, faith and repentance. These twin graces, as we've said, are the the dual elements of, of conversion. If we were to think of the different aspects of our salvation, our, our election, um, adoption, justification, sanctification, those different aspects, we, the, these are what compose conversion, faith, and repentance. As we've said, not only does it take faith and repentance to enter the Christian life, it takes faith and repentance to live the Christian life. Just to situate ourselves in the text, so far we've, we've really dealt with introductory material. We've, we've talked about how the baptism was the inauguration of Christ's ministry. And here is really the beginning of it. <clears throat> and, and really we see this theme of Christ's authority kind of overarching this whole section that goes not just for a few verses but for several chapters as Mark explains to us who Jesus is. We see here his authority to preach the gospel and his authority to demand faith and repentance. So I want to consider this tonight under two headings. First, the proclamation of the gospel, and secondly, the requirements of the gospel. We need to note, first of all, that as it is in so many places in Scripture, God often begins by reminding us what he has done for us. And isn't that a blessing that he tells us what he has already done for us prior to telling us what he is requiring of us? Just like in Exodus 20, what did God say prior to giving the Ten Commandments? He said, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He said, I am your God, and this is what I have done for you. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on and gives them the Ten Commandments. Mark tells us that Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ before he tells the requirements of the gospel. Before God asks anything of us, he sets himself before us as redeemer and king. And we see that here. Now, if you'll look at your text, I want to call your attention to a neatly embedded structure in these verses. And hopefully it will pop out to us if we ask the very simple questions that you probably learned in in elementary uh, literature of when, where, and what. First, we want to look at verse 14. It tells us when. It tells us these events occurred after John was arrested. Now, John, as we saw in previous verses, was a very significant figure in proclaiming and heralding the arrival of Christ. He fulfilled prophecy himself, and he pointed to how Christ was coming, and he pointed to Christ as the Messiah. But here, John is, it's almost, or I'm sorry, Mark, Mark is almost dismissive of John. He just simply says after John had been arrested. Doesn't tell us what he was arrested for or how long he had been in prison. It does go back in chapter 6, we'll see later, and circles back and gives us details of his arrest and imprisonment and his his interaction with Herod. Herod. But right now it just simply says, after John was arrested. And I think the reason for that is, is to simply put our focus upon Christ. In other words, it's saying, John has served his purpose to introduce Christ, and now here Jesus is. He shifts the focus from John to Christ. <clears throat> and, and John was a man who had a, had a foot in two ages, really. He was the last of the prophets, and he introduced Christ. He closed the old covenant and introduced the arrival of the new. He, he helped us to see how the, the new fulfilled the promises of the old. But now Christ is at center stage. It is Jesus that is preaching and teaching. It is Christ who is proclaiming the message of faith and repentance. Jesus is who it's all about. Verse 14 also tells us where this occurs. It's a shift not just in the messenger, but it's also in location. Remember, John was baptizing in the wilderness south in Judea. Now we're up in Galilee, in the north, in Jesus' hometown, if you will, where the people are. Down south, people had to come to him. Here, Jesus is taking the message of the gospel to the people in Galilee. And what is it that he does? What is his method? His method is preaching. It says that he came proclaiming. Preaching is proclamation. It is telling forth. It is to proclaim openly. He shared the good news by proclaiming it to the people. I remember one year at... at, um, the holidays, we were with my brother's family, and so it was kind of his, his side of the family. I'll, I'll blame it on him. But sometimes you get in those awkward conversations. And this, this man was, who was, uh, we entered this discussion on the value of preaching. And he was of the opinion that preaching was kind of a thing of the past, and, and what we needed was just one-on-one discipleship. And, I, and I'm, all, I'm a fan of that, okay? But not at the expense of the proclamation of God's word. 
And so I'm not sure what he thought worship was supposed to consist of, but I wish I could have pointed him to this verse and said, well, what was it that Jesus came doing? Jesus proclaimed. Jesus told it forth. He proclaimed the gospel. That's what Paul did. That's what we see throughout the New Testament, the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. So we see the proclamation of the gospel. We've seen a little bit of what it means, but now we see the requirements of the gospel. Now, for the purpose of this text, we have to understand a little more of what the kingdom is because Jesus proclaimed the message of the kingdom. And this, this is something that we see a lot, in the, particularly in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <clears throat> but we could also ask these questions um, of, of verse 15, where and when and what. This tells us that the time had been fulfilled, and that the kingdom is at hand. It is here and now, Jesus is saying. After hundreds of years of expectation, Christ has finally come. His kingdom has arrived. Many from the Old Testament could agree with the the song that we sing, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. The long-expected Jesus had arrived. And while those under the Old Covenant could not fully understand exactly what the redemption and the rescue were to look like, they were looking for a rescue. And Jesus is saying that rescue has come. Ever since Genesis 3.15, they were looking for one to bruise the head of the serpent. Ever since Isaiah 7.14, they were looking for one who would be the offspring of a virgin and who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Ever since Isaiah 9.6, they had been looking for one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They had been looking for the one who was... All of these things. And now Jesus is saying that time has come. Here he begins his ministry and immediately starts talking about the kingdom of God. What exactly is the kingdom of God? We need to see that because we're going to encounter it a lot as we go forward in Mark. Well, we can say that it's not a piece of real estate. It's not modern Israel. There's there's been a lot of discussion about it. Some would say, well, it's a future promise. Some would say it's a present reality. It's, it's evident from our text this evening that it's very much a present reality because Jesus said it is at hand, it is here. But there's also a future element to it because Jesus said in Mark 14, speaking that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until <clears throat> he would drink it new in the kingdom of God. So it's, it's already and it's not yet. It's, it has come, it is being fulfilled, and yet it is yet to be fully fulfilled. It's a current reality and a future hope. So I say all these things, and if, if you haven't thought about these things or heard this in this language, you're probably scratching your head and thinking, you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth. Well, I, I, a few years ago, 
was trying to explain this concept in a Sunday school class and had a guy come up to me and he said, you know, he said, it's been explained to me like this. The kingdom of God is where the king is. And I thought, that's pretty simple. I can get that. I can, I can grab onto that. Well, I think we need to kind of think of it in those terms because Jesus was there in flesh. He's saying the kingdom is here. Now, we look in the Old Testament and we certainly see the concept of God as king. And God has always been reigning over his creation. We certainly agree to that. But in, in a new way, I think, Jesus, when he came in the flesh and began his ministry, he was saying, I'm the king. And I'm here. And this is my kingdom. And it is, it is not a physical kingdom, but it is a very real kingdom nonetheless. And you enter that kingdom through faith and repentance. <clears throat> so with the incarnation and ministry of Christ, we see his kingdom begin to be advanced and expanded as never before. Christ is king and he is present. His kingdom is present everywhere that he is. And it's important for us to keep this idea, this concept in mind as we proceed, as we continue in the text and think about this concept of repentance and forgiveness. Jesus' message to repent and believe in the gospel, that's the natural reaction to a king. What is it that a king requires? He requires allegiance and the confidence of his subjects. They are to turn from loyalty to any other sovereignty. You can only submit yourself to one king. So when we say that faith and repentance are the requirements of the gospel, we're not in any way saying that they are works of merit that will earn us salvation. They are the natural and unavoidable reaction of a heart that has been regenerated by the king. This was the same message that Paul stated that he had faithfully proclaimed when he was talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 21. He said he, that he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And these two things go hand in hand. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. We could say in a sense that there are two sides of the same coin. If we truly have one then we should have the other. But for our purposes tonight, I think it's helpful for us to deal with them separately. Keep in mind that these are not virtues or activities that we do once and then set them upon a shelf as some ancient relic of our, of our past. These virtues are the lifeblood of our walk with God. So what is faith? I deal with this first, not because it's of lesser importance, but because I think it may be more familiar to us. I just preached a few weeks ago in our five solas series about faith alone, justification by faith alone. And as good Reformed folks, again, we probably have a good idea of what faith is. But how does it, we have a head knowledge, but how does it transfer to our hearts? Again, what difference does it make? In our lives, John Murray said in his in his wonderful book, I might add, "Redemption Accomplished and Applied." If you've not read it, please read it. The wonderful book when and he talks about faith. He says, 
Faith is the whole-souled movement of self-commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. Okay, that's, that's a mouthful. Let me read it again. Faith is the whole-souled movement of self-commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. So think about that a little bit. It is whole-souled. In other words, it involves every part of our soul, every part of our being, every part of our desires and affections in this. And it involves a movement from being confident in ourselves to placing our confidence in another, in Jesus Christ, wholly and completely. And for what reason? For sin and salvation. I'm sorry, for salvation from sin and from the consequences of sin. And brother, sister in Christ, we are buffeted every day from these consequences of sin. That, that sin that so easily besets you, faith calls you to place your faith and trust in Christ and not in yourselves. For that and every sin that you face, every struggle you face. And we have to do that again and again. Murray goes on to remind us that when Christ is presented to lost men, it is as Savior He is presented, as the one who is the embodiment of salvation, and that, that He has once for all accomplished not just the possibility of salvation, but Christ is offered. Christ Himself is offered to the sinner, and Christ offers Himself to us tonight in the gospel. And therefore, salvation, full and perfect, All of Christ and all of his benefits are offered to us. And let me ask you, look into your hearts. I ask you, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough to fulfill every desire of your heart? Believe on him today. I say that without distinction to believers and unbelievers alike. Trust in Christ. Place your faith wholly upon him. Secondly, repentance. Now, repentance, I think you probably know, repentance is more than simply saying, I'm sorry. I've heard children, and it may or may not be one of my own, who treat an apology as a simple formality, as merely words to be said. In fact, I've heard young children say in their own defense, seeking to defend themselves from a grievance, where they would say, well, I said my sorry, as though it's it's a noun, it's it's some tor- some type of uh, indulgence or something that they can that they can pay and and get out of jail free for. Um, but no, it the word actually means to change, to change direction. It's a change of direction resulting from a change of heart, and that's what should mark the life of a Christian. Jonathan Edwards, the great New England minister from the 18th century, wrote 70 resolutions to govern his life and walk with God. And if you'd like to read them, they're out in the hall between the foyer and the the office. Great things to instruct us. And he did that to, to encourage him and point him to Christ and point him to the gospel. And one of the resolutions, I think it was number 24, was this. He said, resolved... Whenever I do anything conspicuously evil, whenever I do any conspicuously evil action, to trace it back till I come to the original cause, and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more, and to fight and pray with all my might against the original of it. 
Edwards was concerned that his, about his actions and realized that sometimes he would do things that were displeasing to God. But Edwards took it a step further. And I think we need to learn from what he said here because when he's talking about the, the origin of it, the origin of it, or the original part of it, he's really talking about the sin behind the sin. And I think to get to the bottom of repentance, we have to think in those terms. We have to think about not just the action, but what is the idol of the heart that caused us to act in the way that we did. And I want to ask you, do you take time to do that? Do you examine why you may have spoken angry words to your spouse? Do you think why your children irritate you? Do you think why you may be envious of others? What is it that is in your heart that causes these actions on the surface? I think we can learn from Edwards and seek it back to that original cause. The Westminster Confession tells us that men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. When we have our time of confession on Sunday mornings, do you is your confession just a general, Lord, I'm sorry for all the wrong I've done this week? Or do you take time to quiet your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what is truly in your heart that has caused you to act in the way that you have? Do you earnestly seek God to re- reveal specific sins, particular sins, that you might confess them particularly? But what difference does all this make now? As I've said, repentance and faith are the requirements of entrance into the kingdom of God. It's what makes us a disciple, but it's what maintains us as a disciple as well. Perhaps you've repented and believed, and maybe you still feel a weight of sin and guilt that you need to let go of. Perhaps it's regret The gospel promises forgiveness tonight. Psalm 103 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Maybe you feel weak and powerless in your walk. Perhaps you struggle with habitual sin, even wondering if if you are addicted to substances or or things that, that you need to let go of. The gospel promises strength, but not our own strength, the strength that is in Christ. We have been given Christ. We are united to Christ, saints of God, and all the blessings that are in him are ours. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And the the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. The grace promise, the gospel promises grace for when you've blown it again. The gospel promises mercy for us. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then 16 tells us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. In time of need. And remember that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 1 Peter 1 3. 
What is the message of the gospel? What is the message of the kingdom of God? It's a message of repentance and faith. We are to do that in the light of the gospel. We are to repent and believe. And just as we enter this life of discipleship through repentance and faith, so we live the life of a disciple by repenting and living a life of faith and repentance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Give us grace to live lives of faith and repentance. Help us to think honestly, and may your Holy Spirit shine the light of the gospel in our hearts that we might live pleasing to you, that we might believe the gospel anew every day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.